Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. CEOs have focused so myopically on quarterly earnings and profits and lost sight of why they exist as a company, Mm. what their responsibility is to their workforce and to their customers. So I think what we're saying is, yes, companies need to make money. That's the way we're all going to be employed and get paid. But, you know, it's maybe cliche, but there's a doing well by doing good. Maybe the returns won't be quite as high or quite as short term, but I think that that CEOs also realize that their customers are now choosing to work with companies with purpose. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 52. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Josh Campbell. Josh is a serial entrepreneur with a passion for helping organizations and executives leverage technology to transform their business and drive sustainable growth. Currently, he serves as the CEO of Techonomy Media. Prior to Techonomy, Josh helped launch Offer IQ a digital marketing platform that was acquired in 2010 by Transactus, a leading electronic bill payment and presentment company. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really awesome to have you. And we're having this conversation early in the morning on the East Coast. And so even though I wasn't going to start here, I was actually thinking about this. And you probably have some real insight because I just, I was out in California doing some talks earlier in the week. And I came back and I'm sort of dealing with jet lag and have tried to catch up on my workouts and things like that. So this morning when I woke up and I got to sleep late last night. So this morning I woke up, I was just like exhausted and, and I, I just couldn't push myself forward. But I've been listening to Mel Robbins and the five second rule. And I've been thinking about productivity and trying to get as much done as I possibly can. You seem to be number one, a high performer and number two, an early bird. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious to know, just get us started with a productivity hack, you know, something that you do when you're not necessarily feeling it, or maybe that kind of preempts it so that you can just sort of get moving and get things done. Yeah, no, it's it's funny, you know, um, our mutual friend, you know, Billy Mann, I I saw on Facebook this morning, he posted that he was up at 5am and didn't realize, you know, that's as we get older, you know, we just get up earlier. And you saw all the comments coming in about productivity, about people finding that quiet time, that early time, not only to reflect, but to really, again, lack of distraction. I think we all sort of, once that 9.30, especially here in Manhattan hits and people are in the office and you're getting pulled in a million directions, you know, I think, you know, you can't focus. I think those early hours you could focus. I use that time really to just quickly go back through everything that I did the day before because um, you realize you get inundated with emails, with phone calls and things. Sure. Back. So for me, that first time in the morning is just quickly going through my inbox, making sure I got back to the people I was supposed to um, before I start the next day. So then you're again, not compounding the problem. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. I love the idea of taking advantage of quiet time. And for me, uh, I, I start my day with prayer. And then I'm done by about 7, 7.15, no latest in the morning. I'm home. And until everybody's up, I, I work from my home office first thing, and then I'm off on clients and whatnot. Um, and so 
that's my best time to, to really get things done, clear my head, determine what are my action items and, and, and really, really seize the day. So uh, carpe diem for both of us. And I'm looking forward to keeping, keeping going here in our conversation. So, you know, th there's a lot that I shared in the bio. I would love to unpack it a little bit more succinctly, you know, tell us what it is that you do and, and how do you do it? Right. So the, our current company, Techonomy, you know, really was founded with basic principle that leaders, uh, business leaders, leaders in academia, government leaders, you know, it's very hard for them to sort of understand the rapid pace of change as sort of impacted by technology. So really, Techonomy is a, a platform, media and events that helps leaders understand, you know, how are these emerging tech trends transforming not only their businesses, but their workforce, their products and services, how they interface with, face with their customers. So really, we're part think tank, part sort of convener of events and publisher of media. Interesting. So it's more what we'd call it market-driven and technical knowledge, not so much, let's say, when we think about leadership, we often, and this is where I operate, I typically operate in the human skills, soft skills, you know, interpersonal stuff. How do you motivate, engage, inspire, you know, live in integrity, this kind of thing. It's not so much that, it's more what's going on in the world, the markets and, and, and in tech and whatever. Yeah. Is that you it? Know, not necessarily. I mean, I think it was an interesting announcement we saw yesterday from the business roundtable, 200 CEOs saying we're no longer putting shareholders first. You know, we have to really think about our mission and purpose. Um, I, I think we're starting to see, you know, the, the business drivers and societal, you know, sort of convening. Um, so I think a lot of the content we're helping leaders understand is not the technical knowledge itself, but sort of the unintended consequences of technology, the impact it'll have on its workforce. Um, you know, I think, you know, Facebook is a good example. You, you look at, um, you know, is at our event uh, in 2016, the day after Donald Trump was elected, that Mark Zuckerberg uh, pretty much said, uh, it's a crazy idea that fake news on Facebook influenced the election, right? So a day after the election, he had no clue how his platform was manipulated to influence the election. And we've seen that happen in other, in other countries, you know, using social media and Facebook. So we're not helping the leaders understand technically how to use Facebook, rather, okay, let's understand what does social platforms and self-publishing mean, and how does that move markets in the public sector or you know, in society, how does that change? sort of this, you know, this, this, this grassroots efforts. Interesting. You know, I, I don't expect you to know all of the content that you post on, on your site, but you just did reference a piece about the CEOs and I was very curious about that. Um, when they talk about not putting their shareholders first, what instead is their new normal, their new priority, so to speak? And what do you think is driving that? Because to me, that really, it, it kind of speaks to the intersection of leadership, of business, of values, like you talked about, what's driving that? And what's the, what do you anticipate is sort of like the next step in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, if you look back, uh, I think it was two years ago, Larry Fink from BlackRock, you know, publishes an annual letter um, and really talked about business as a driver for society and the world. Um, I think in, especially in the public markets, CEOs have focused so myopically on quarterly earnings and profits and lost sight of what, you know, why they exist as a company, mm. 
what their responsibility is to their workforce um, and to their customers, right? So I think what we're saying is, yes, there's definitely companies need to make money. Uh, that's the way we're all going to be employed and get paid. Um, but, you know, it, it's maybe cliche, but there's a doing well by doing good. Um, you know, there is a way that maybe the returns won't be quite as high or quite as short term. Um, but I think that, that CEOs also realize that their customers are now choosing to work with companies with purpose. Um, you know, so, so maybe it does trickle down to the business aspect of why do companies need to just be better corporate and work citizens of the world. But I think we're starting to see that CEOs are more cognizant to you know this you know societal factors and the role they play in society there's companies you know like mastercard ajay banga has really focused on you know financial inclusion and bringing new people into the banking system yes that helps mastercard but he's doing it from a truly the right reason so I think we're just, we've seen that shift over the last couple of years of companies starting to think that way. Yeah, it's kind of like I'm hearing Simon Sinek, the knowing your why type of idea and really putting your purpose out there and letting values kind of drive everything. You know, it's, it, it's something that I do on a regular basis where I'll meet with a company or a team and we'll talk about their values. And oftentimes values are, are not necessarily so clear and as a result, people don't know how to operate in certain situations, so they're not really sure what their drivers are. But I oftentimes find that when we go through a, a process of identifying the values and then applying them, how is it relevant in this situation, this circumstance, whether it's internal or outward-facing, client-facing, et cetera, it makes a huge impact. And right. so, you know, that, that's a really important piece, and I think that that kind of brings us to Another question I have for you that's not so much about your values, but clearly you're somebody who's very, let's say, introspective and, and sees leadership and sees business as being more than just transactional in nature. And in order to be a great leader, as you know, Josh, it's trial and error to a degree. There are ups and downs. And I think what really resonates with Lead to Succeed Nation with myself and with anyone listening to the podcast is not only what are all of your successes that you could point to, but what were some of the challenges that you encountered along the way? Because when we learn from our failures, we ultimately have, in, in many cases, the biggest breakthroughs. So talk right. us through an experience, please, where you felt at the time, it felt like a, a, like a failure, like something that just wasn't working, and you turned it into something meaningful for you and perhaps even, you know, a real breakthrough in your, in your work? You know, I think the key thing for me is you talk about values and culture. Um, I've now gone through two different uh, acquisitions of different companies um, and merging of corporate cultures is uh, sometimes very difficult, uh, especially if you've been the one responsible for building and driving the culture that your company comes in with. Um, so, you know, I, I would say, you know, in my last acquisition, you know, we were a small team moving into a larger organization. And again, you know, I think, uh, you know, at that point I was, you know, my early mid thirties and you think, you know, everything, um, and you had built, you know, we had built a, you know, successful enough business that obviously someone put a value on acquiring it and you come into a larger organization where they want to change your processes, how you manage your people, you know, all of that. And you're just very resistant. You know, I think, um, you know, initially I was resistant to the change um, and to the willingness to understand. Um, I think, again, in, in retrospect, looking back, um, 
and again, I, I don't think I solved it in that case. I, I ultimately decided to leave, you know, the business um, a, a year in um, just because I was frustrated. Um, so I think, you know, trying to step back sometimes, um, and which is hard, we all come into any conversation, any meeting, any situation with sort of our own opinion and usually a strong one on how things should be done. Um, and what I realized you know, is rather than get defensive, which is I think a lot of times our initial reaction to to change, um, is to sort of step back, is to at least listen and have a constructive conversation. In many cases, maybe neither group, neither person is right or wrong. Maybe in many cases you come to a better conclusion. But I think, you know, what I've learned is just really in any of these cases is to come in with an open mind and be willing to listen. You may not have to agree, you could agree to disagree. Um, but uh, but coming you know into those situations more open to to change. Yeah, that was a very open answer, very candid, and 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 I appreciate the candor. It's very interesting because I can speak to almost exactly the same situation, though in the nonprofit space. My background is in education and in school leadership, and this book over here, becoming the new boss, which I wrote a couple of years ago, um, it was really the outgrowth of my experience in transitioning from one position to another, moving up the educational food chain, so to speak, to a different different school, different environment, but not necessarily appreciating some of the cultural challenges. I was moving from north to south, big city to another big city, but the school community was much smaller and more intimate and a di totally different operative style from the previous head of school and the way that people rolled, so to speak, in that, in that community. And so I tried in my own way, also in my 30s, also I suppose, if I'm being honest with myself, thinking I know everything, walking in there trying to say, this is how I do things, and this is how we're gonna do things. And it was a bit of a, I don't want to say it was a bull in a china shop, but it was certainly a bit of a more um, aggressive approach than probably I should have taken. And the result of that is that, number one, it took much more time to really learn the culture. And I talk about in my book the importance of getting to understand the environment in which you are now leading or at least operating as much as you can. And then being strategic in terms of building equity and identifying opportunities to um, to integrate and then to determine what's the best pathway forward. Because oftentimes, if there's too much headwind at the beginning, you spend all this time, at least that was my experience, trying to recreate or perhaps reposition the relationship, and it never quite worked out the same way. So I think where you can to enter into a new situation, to be strategic about it, to be you know um, careful in terms of of, of, of understanding before just sort of doing your thing can in many cases be helpful. And you could, in your case, it could be that it just was an untenable situation. I'm not looking to get into the weeds there. And I'm not asking you necessarily to respond to it as much as just to point out that this is a real issue. And whether you're being acquired or whether you're just transitioning from one position to another, it's very important to understand that what worked over here may not necessarily work over there. And the leadership's the leader's responsibility is to sort of take that step back, try to get the view, get as much information as you can, build the relationships, and then kind of step forward. Right, and we and we see that day in day out. We I mean we work with a lot of the big Fortune 500 companies that are trying to go through what they're calling their digital transformation, and a lot of times they go out and they hire 
either a consulting firm or they ultimately bring in what they call a chief innovation officer or something like that. Now, again, the reason they're bringing those people in is because they're hoping to go through this transformation. What, they real, what those people typically realize very quickly is these entrenched enterprises, it's very hard to, move, to sort of move the ship. So you hear more from chief innovation officers, hey, I was brought in to make these changes, but there's a lot of resistance. And it's, again, a lot of these institutions, it's just very hard for them to change their culture overnight. So just for the purpose of translation or for making sure everybody's clear on, on terminology, because sometimes, you know, when we're in our businesses, we, we totally get it. But what is, just define the term for us, please. We can sort of make sense of it, but I think you could really speak to it in more detail. What is a digital transformation? And why is it so difficult for some of the more entrenched businesses to effectively do that? So, I mean, digital transformation really is, again, thinking about how digital and digital technology specifically will impact all aspects of the business. Everything from core operations, uh, internal workforce development and HR, all the way through, obviously, our products, our services, how we interface with our customers. So I think as we see technology and digital becoming more pervasive in every aspect of our business, um, you know, companies are trying to figure out what does that mean to them. Now, again, especially when you look at, again, some industries like healthcare, financial services, who have done things a certain way for so long, um, people become a bit resistant, as anyone else, to saying, hey, we need to do things differently. Uh, so I think, again, as we see people talk about the Uberization of everything, right, it sets a new expectation for customers, either in B2B or B2C, businesses, you know, companies need to understand what does that mean to their company and their industry, and they're all trying to figure out what that means. And when you come into businesses, what would you say is the biggest deficit, the thing you notice that say consistently time and again, that businesses haven't figured out yet, that they need your help or just in general in order to get themselves fully um, implanted, if you will, in the 21st century? You know, I still think we go back to this idea of how do they harness the data that they have. Um, you know, data is such a powerful thing, um, especially, again, as we look at historical data, understanding how our customers interface with us, um, and they're all sitting on a treasure trove of data, uh, but they still make guesses based on what do their customers want, how should they deliver services, based on gut, which I think is great. I think innovation comes from that. It doesn't come just from looking at the data. But I think there's, there's a big challenge facing these organizations that this data is locked up in different business units, in different functions, in different formats. Um, so in many cases, it's very hard to correlate, you know, you know, how that data could be used. So I think, you know, we, these companies are sitting on this information um, that could be powerful to their business and they're sort of paralyzed by what they could do. How do they gather it? How do they put it into a usable format? And how do they analyze it? Got it. So let's, let's go from where, they, where they've been, as in not a perfect place and needing to, to kind of get caught up, to being a little bit more futuristic in our thinking. Tell us of a, of a trend or a curve within the tech space that leaders need to be getting ahead of? In other words, even if they're 
doing the right thing today, something you see coming down the horizon that if they're going to be strategic about it is really going to help them be remain current moving forward. Right. I think, you know, the, the trend is, and, and everyone sort of is, is currently talking about it, is the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning on, you know, pretty much everything. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting when you start to think about problems in business, um, you know, one of the key things is understanding what does the future hold, but also analyzing current processes. Um, you know, one of the examples I was talking to a... Um, someone in government yesterday and they said, well, you know, we're such a big organization within government. We have people doing purchasing agreements and procurement. There's really no way to understand what the right hand's doing, what the left hand's doing. And they ultimately realized they could take all these contracts and feed it through artificial intelligence to start to gather and look at the trends, look at what each other is doing. Now, again, I'm not talking about replacing people with doing this analysis, but actually the power in the data. I use a, a small example of my father was a dentist. Um, and um, at one point, they realized that there was a correlation between um, gum disease and heart disease. Um, and it was interesting because it's one of those things where who would have thought your dentist and your cardiologist needed to share information and analyze it to find those, those correlations, right? That's what artificial intelligence will do. It'll take these massive amounts of data that we're all creating and all throwing off and unsure even what the insights will find and help leaders start to really dig in and understand their business, their customers, their products um, in a way that I think they, they really don't even understand what's possible. That's fascinating. Yeah, I never would think that a dentist and a cardiologist would need to be collaborating much. So uh, it kind of brings it all together and really reminds us that our bodies are one entity. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, my parents are still into it, holistic medicine and chiropractic and um, uh, I'm forgetting now, homeopathic and whatnot. There's a lot more in that space about the body as a single entity, acupuncture, and how something over here being out of alignment or something over there being in some way not quite right affects or, or radiates pain or other issues in other parts of our, of our anatomy. And I guess if you think of the business world or our businesses as an ecosystem of having different components and different departments, oftentimes we have this silo mentality and we think of it as this department, this product, this service. But the reality is we, we need to be able to bring our people together and see not only how can we support one another, but how could we identify? This goes back to where I think we started our conversation, the idea of being purpose-driven, of having a why, a set core of values, all of this. If we all rally around it, it creates an identity, which I think in today's day and age, um, you, know, you and I, I don't think, fit into this next uh, a generational space, if you will, but for the millennials on down, it's it's that much more important, I think, than ever before, for there to be a feeling of connection and identity to not only what it is, you know, where I work and what I do, but why I do it. And so, right. you know, that I think is is an important piece for businesses to constantly be thinking about: how do I increase engagement? So that well, and I think that that's, that's going to impact yeah. recruiting. Right. So, I mean, when you talk about millennial generation, right, they want to work for companies that have purpose. They want to buy from companies that have purpose. So 
you know, when we started talking about, you know, shareholder value won't be the core metric, you know, purpose and mission still does ultimately drive business value, right? So if it yeah. is on the hiring side or on the, the customer side. So um, ultimately, it may not have the same short-term value as just slashing headcount or, you know, sort of manufacturing in sort of non-environmentally friendly ways or whatever a company really thinks about as far as how they achieve better results. Yeah, so so let's actually stay there for a minute um, because you've seen workers of different kinds and, and obviously different environments. What do you see as a way by which businesses, besides for having purpose and values, and those are significant, anything else you would say that businesses could do to drive engagement in particular? Because despite AI and all the trends towards machine and machine learning and all of this, we're never going to replace the human being and the importance of of our people um not only their intellectually but the, the 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 whole the whole employee if you will so so what have you found that really works for you your people as well as companies you serve that raises engagement and keeps people motivated to show up and do their very best you know i think you see a lot of companies you know salesforce you know in particular that sort of allow their employees or or you know 1%, you know, sort of give time for volunteering um, and other, ex, you know, other activities outside of their core roles. I think we start to see companies like Google that gives you time to work on other projects other than your, you know, sort of core function. Uh, and again, that takes sort of a lot of forethought in that, you know, productivity on the core role may go down in theory. Um, but you're probably getting more from your workforce and from those people, you know, sort of in, in total. So, you know, there are these trade-offs. Um, and I think, again, um, in a world where, you know, I think employment is at an interesting time where the employees are making more calculated choices, not just based on pure comp scheme and salary, um, that they are looking for quality of life, that they are looking for, you know, other things in an organization that they work for. I think you know companies are are trying to to offer that you know, and again when you think about though the 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 spectrum of sizes of companies, as a small company, it's much harder to do those types of things because again you're working at such a smaller scale and everyone is contributing so much towards you know sort of the growth of the business at big companies, you know it's it's maybe a little easier to free up someone uh, for some time. So I think. Leaders have to also understand sort of within their, you know, sort of world and the size of the company, what is possible. Um, but, you know, again, we're starting to see, you know, companies with more remote opportunities with, you know, sort of more workforce development, reskilling, retraining opportunities, you know, all of those things that continue, you know, to, to build that engagement. You know, if you rewind, you know, decades, you know, you look at it, it used to be apprenticeship, it used to be on the job training. You know, there used to be more opportunities for people within companies. You know, I think we've moved slightly away from those types of opportunities because of job switching is more prevalent now than it probably once was. I mean, as you know, I mean, a lot of people, you know, in the past generations got hired from a company out of college and probably stayed there till they retired. Um, I think we're seeing a lot more job switching. We're seeing, so it's, it's, you know, a different time, but I think companies are still trying to crack if it's you know, the Google model of giving you free lunch and massages and all of that. Um, you know, again, it's also the Trojan horse of keeping you there longer days because, you know, maybe you're happier. So, um, 
you know, every company is doing it different. Tony Shea at Zappos has his philosophy, you know? Um, so, you know, I think each, I don't think there's a cookie cutter way to sort of solve this engagement issue. And sort of, I think it's really understanding again, maybe back to your point, what is the corporate culture, you know, getting the right people on the bus uh, and then from there, you know, really empowering them to sort of grow. Yeah, you have a lot there. I wish I could unpack it all. A couple of quick things. First of all, you know, the the old story, it's, 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 a, it's an indirect tie-in of the CEO and the CFO that are talking. And the CFO is looking at all the costs that the company is investing in professional development and training for staff and things like that. And he says, well, what if we put all this money into our people and they, and they leave? And then the CEO replies and says, well, what if we don't invest in them and they stay? <laughs> right. You know? And so exactly. it's kind of like the same idea. If I, if I think about millennials in particular and our younger workers who are, the, the, the statistics are pretty, I don't want to say frightening, but they're pretty clear that, that people don't stick around very long anymore in most cases. They're always looking for that next opportunity, that next way fu to fulfill, find fulfillment. And if we can provide it, so it, it may be that we are losing quote unquote productivity in the short term, which, which is a debatable statement. But even if that would be the case, in terms of the long term and the issues of turnover and the cost of onboarding and all of those mm -hmm. things, it's an investment in many cases that's well worthwhile. And it certainly creates in the day to day, in the moment to moment, a much more positive, upbeat environment because people feel that they're not just a number, but that actually people are thinking about them and that they matter. And I wrote uh, an ebook for small business leaders and, and for nonprofit leaders called The Epic Solution to Understaffing, specifically to the point you were talking about before, for smaller companies, how do I get more with less? And how do I find ways by which to balance all of that so I can still give to my people more? So that's available on my website, impactfulcoaching.com forward slash epic, and maybe a, a useful resource for those who are listening in on our conversation. So, so now we're going to pivot. You've given me a ton. Uh, I'm going to lighten it just a little bit. So as we move now into our rapid fire, and I'm going to ask you, Josh, <clears throat> the following. Number one, three action steps without elaboration, just the steps themselves, if you can, that every leader should do every day. Three steps. Um, I would say listen, think, and then react. I think we, we missed a lot of times that, that middle step of, you know, we're, we're very reactionary into listening to the teams, listening to our customers. Um, I think that, you, you know, that middle step is most important. Interesting. I love it. You know, the think part. And, and sometimes, I, I know you have it on so many different levels, whether it's, um, well, I'm a, Victor Frankl, who was the psychiatrist or psychologist who survived the Holocaust and talked about the gap between the stimulus and your response. And oftentimes we don't give enough focus to that. But if you can control yourself for just long enough, the outcome of, the, um, of what you observe could often be very different in terms of your reaction. If you had an hour to be with one person you would never otherwise meet, who would that be? If I had that, is it the interesting could be thing? a historical we, figure. We get to meet so many interesting people here that uh, that I have to really think about it. Um, you know, I think uh, I would actually say my great grandfather, right? Um, you know, uh, I think when I look back at a sort of you know family and understanding our move, you know, here to the United States and all that, I would just want to know more about myself and sort of our family uh, rather than 
you know, again, trying to separate myself from, from business uh, 24 seven. And it's so interesting because people are so into identity now, like you have ancestry.com and other websites. They just want to know where am I from? Who am I in my essence? Yeah. And a lot of that is our, is our ancestry and our history on a scale of one to 10. How curious are you? I would say I'm, um, I would index high on that. I would say, let's say nine. Okay. And my last one, a quote that you live by or think about often. Um, I, I have a new one um, that, uh, that, that, you know, I, I don't think I have one for a long time, but I, I met a recently a, uh, a senior politician that has a big sign on his, uh, on his wall that says it is what it is. And you know, when we discussed it, uh, I thought it was fascinating. It, it, it doesn't mean you have to give up uh, and just accept it. But he said, before you make any changes or decisions, you have to accept that there is, you know, it is what it is. So I, I, I think it's for me, that's really been impactful of sort of that, that quote is, first, we have to accept reality before we can make changes doesn't mean we can't change it. Yeah. And I think that speaks to your conversation, our conversation earlier about the failure and the transition, the acquisition and all of that. So I think it's a nice way to kind of loop us back to where we started here. So tell us where uh, people could reach you, um, find out more about you, follow you and, uh, and learn more from your wonderful work. Right. So uh, yeah, we publish uh, digitally daily. Uh, sometimes I write at techonomy.com. Um, I could be found on Twitter at Josh Campbell. Uh, I'm a, uh, on LinkedIn 24 seven. So feel free to send a LinkedIn request, um, or, uh, email at Josh at techonomy.com. It is so interesting because I, th I'm doing this off the top of my head, but you're at least the third guest now that I've had on the podcast that is in, um, the, information sharing space. The other two are in investment. One of them is Ellie Hoffman at Seeking Alpha. The other one is Ian Rosen over at StockTwits. And so now, um, you know, and, and your website's got gold on it. You know, there's a ton there. I would encourage everybody to go take a look. And, uh, you know, you really bring not only some really great technical and business awareness, but as we started to talk about before, understanding leadership from a different angle as well. So certainly head over there and learn more about what Josh is up to and what his company has to offer. So before we let you go, one final life lesson, please, Josh, that's going to just kind of send us with that extra inspiration to the rest of our day. Yeah, you know, and I think it really, you know, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on the, on the podcast, but what I've learned Fa to tell people, family orientation here, right, is uh, don't be a jerk. Um, you know, I think in business, we realize the world is getting smaller. Um, and uh, so if you think about it purely from a life lesson, just it's it, life's too short to be a jerk. People don't want to work for jerks. They don't want to do business with jerks. Uh, they don't want to be around jerks. And I think it's a lot of times you know, we just, we kind of forget that. Um, so, you know, I think that it takes a little more maybe to be nice, you know, but it, it will pay off in the long term. I love it. I love it on, on, on multiple levels. Number one, obviously the idea of, of always showing up as your very best self, but the other piece, which I think could really be extracted and, and applied in so many other areas is that to be a jerk 
let's use the term, uh, in many ways, it's, it's, it's the default. It's kind of like if I, don't, if I feel crummy inside, but on top of it, it's the fast way of doing business in a sense, right? If I don't close the conversation properly, if I don't address an email in a respectful kind of way or using language that has a professional tone to it, this kind of thing, it just feels like I'm being a jerk. It feels like I'm just you know, self-serving in this kind of thing and not putting myself out there for the, for the betterment of people around me. And if you just take a little bit of additional time, for me, it's very difficult sometimes because I want to jump right into the conversation. I forget the empathy. I forget, you know, what does the other person really need from me? And I have to go back and reread and make sure, did I put the empathy in there? <laughs> did I, you know, did I really right. uh, touch it up the way that it needs to be? So being it, doesn't nice, mean, it doesn't mean you always have to agree. Yeah, right? yeah but, it's, but it's a mindset like, yeah. and it makes you feel better. It makes yeah. you ultimately feel like, you know, I, I really did this the right way. So, Josh, you have been far from a jerk. You've been awesome. And I thank you so very much for coming on with, with us this morning, uh, recording this um, first thing in the morning on a sunny day here in New York City. Uh, and uh, definitely looking to get this out very soon. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, it's really been a pleasure to meet you. Great. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 